Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, saxophonist, flutist, composer, poet, Elliot Levin. You know, I've always had a good experience with traveling, playing music. I very rarely have had, I mean, I've got stranded a few times and <laughs> kind of crazy stuff, but they always turned out good in some way, you know, because I think it's like the intent of going to play music and to be creative and bring your spirit to other parts of the world. There's guardian spirits that watch out for you and maybe help and protect if you keep attuned to that. So it's good to keep positive, yeah. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to writers, artists, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find out more about past guests at the Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook. Follow the Fun to Know podcast, always with a numeral 2, or stream and download the show through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. On today's show, saxophonist, flutist, composer, poet, Elliot Levin. Elliot Levin is a Philadelphia-born talent who has traveled far and wide in his career, establishing himself as an Iron Man of music. Ubiquitous across the city of Philadelphia since the 1970s, playing countless gigs across numerous musical styles. Soon after picking up the saxophone, Elliot fell under the spell of the galvanizing jazz pianist Cecil Taylor while Taylor taught at New Jersey's Glassboro State College. Levin first found acclaim touring the world with Philly international giants Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes for over a decade, and his career in jazz and improvised music has seen him performing and recording with the Sun Ra Orchestra's Tyrone Hill and Marshall Allen, Mother of Invention keyboardist Don Preston, Sonic Liberation Front, Jamaluddin Takuma, the West Philadelphia Orchestra, and Odin Pope's Saxophone Choir, and his poetry has been published in the LA Weekly. I've been wanting to get Elliot in front of a microphone for some time, and our conversation didn't disappoint. When I spoke to Elliot, he was just back from a tour of Mexico, and earlier in the month he celebrated his 70th birthday with a concert in Philadelphia, leading a band featuring the 99-year-old Sun Ra Orchestra Band leader Marshall Allen. We'll discuss Elliot's upbringing in West Philly, College in the turbulent early 70s, touring the world with the Blue Notes, his collaborations with the Sun Ra Orchestra band leader Marshall Allen, his poetry, a saxophonist's life during quarantine, and more, as well as hearing a bit of Elliot's music recorded throughout his career. Let's head over to that conversation right now. We're here with Elliot Levin, uh, a uh, very well-known staple in uh, Philadelphia and beyond, a great saxophone player, flautist, and poet. He's been uh, published in the L.A. Weekly with his poetry. He's he's worked with Cecil Taylor and Odin Pope and a lot of heavyweight jazz guys. And uh, he is known as the ubiquitous sax man of Philadelphia. He's, I'm sure, played more gigs than he can ever count. And uh, we're very excited, very excited to have him here at the microphone. He just recently uh, played a gig uh, earlier in October uh, celebrating his 70th birthday uh, at, the, at the Rotunda, uh, playing along with the 99-year-old band leader uh, Marshall Allen on yes, saxophone. I love playing with Marshall because he makes me feel so young, like a child. It's great. <laughs> so how you doing, Elliot? I'm doing really well, and thanks. Today is a nice day, and I've been playing a lot of good music lately, which is very nice. And um, 
Yeah, it's good to be here. And it's a, it's a day like any other, it seems, because you do have a gig later on tonight. Yes, the West Philly Orchestra. And I played last night with Airlift up in the Commodore Barry With Club. Kevin Deal, yeah. I was there. That was a, a right. great night. Matt Lavelle and uh, Terry uh, Lawson. Pete Dennis, <laughs> Terry Lawson, all, all great players. Uh, yeah, we played it the fourth Thursday of every month. Uh, so, uh, as I said, you, you know, a real uh, uh, a well-respected, well-known name in Philadelphia, and you are born and raised in Philadelphia, I aren't am, you? Yeah. Yeah, where, where, where were you, uh, what neighborhood were you from? Uh, I grew up in West Philly, uh, originally around 52nd and Parkside on Wilton Street, a little street right behind the Man Music Center, which didn't exist then. It was George's Hill, and uh, that was our sledding hill where we used to go to school. And it was also like the lover's lane for the neighbors, you know. <laughs> and um, then I also lived a little bit over in Winfield, Closer to St. Joe's College, around that area. Did you did you grow up in a musical family? No, not really. My father was an architect, and my sister, I have an older sister, is a visual artist, painter, and uh, she was really the one that kind of turned me on to a lot of stuff. She started. She was the first one in our family that really bought records, and I think the first records she bought that really influenced me was the West Side Story soundtrack, which had just come out. The movie was is like you know. I was like 10 years old. Like it was like 63 or something that came out. Yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah. And it, so it was brand new, and the music was just totally amazing to me. I never heard any, any music like that, and I really, to this day, I love that music. It's great. And then she had a Jimmy Smith album. Jimmy Smith plays Peter and the Wolf, which t today is still one of my favorite albums. That's like a phenomenal. Oliver Nelson does the arranging. And Jimmy Smith's a great organ player. And man, he plays so much on that album. He was so fantastic. I, I really love that music. I, you know, again, I never got old. I always like it. Well, so wh uh, when did you first pick up an instrument? You know, uh, in high in elementary school, so I played flute and recorder like a lot of people. And uh, I kind of enjoyed it, but I didn't think I really had any musical future. <laughs> so... <laughs> But then, in what, high school, what, what were you busy doing? If you weren't doing music, yeah, I'm trying kid. to. I mean, can't you know, imagine I'm, Elliot living without music. I was, a, you know, we were kids. I was, you know, I, I used to run a lot. Actually, I ran track and cross country. I, I loved running. I was very into that. Unfortunately, I had an injury. The the week before my championship in high school, our cross country championship, I was having a training run and I tripped coming downhill and tore the ligaments in my ankle, which is a very very long process to heal and there was no way I could run in the championship and because of that our team came in second and we would have won if I ran because I was definitely you know with me there we made a certain you know they take the first five runners that's how they score it and I was in the top five and so without that we lost by a couple points so that was the end of my running career pretty much. but I actually got offers for scholarships to college and stuff you know not like big time offers but enough that would make it worthwhile to to pursue it. But then I, right around this time I started, you know, we're talking about 1969, 70, 71. So the world, there was a lot going on in the world that was like, it was a momentous time, you know. And all those AAC, I mean the Actuel album, they were all recorded that year, 69, you know, the summer, I think 70 in Paris. Uh, Woodstock and the Atlantic City Rock Festival happened that year. Um, I mean, so so many things, you know, politically, musically, culturally. So, were you part of the counterculture? In I that, was in that totally world? being swept up into it. There's, you know, there was no way I could avoid it. Really. 
Uh, and plus, you know, like I said, I had a sister who was an artist, and I was hanging out with her and her friends sometimes. And you grow your hair long? I have had long hair and a beard since I've been in high school, yes. So it's over <laughs> 50 years, yeah. So when did you pick up the saxophone, though? When, when well, then in happen? high school, I started, I, all my friends were musicians, most of them guitar players. I had a good friend named Bob Woods, who actually was the first bass player of the Hooters. We, I remember we used to listen to all kinds of stuff. He loved Arthur Lee and Love. Uh, of course, we, we all loved Jimi Hendrix. He was like, you know, at the peak of his career at that point. But we were listening to like Coltrane and we started listening to Sun Ra and all, all kinds of, you know, amazing, interesting things. Then this other friend of mine, Richard Preston, who is still around and uh, he found the flute. He said, I'll give you this flute if you promise me you'll learn to play it. And very synchronistically, things have worked this way all in my life. My first girlfriend in high school, interestingly enough, was a flute player. And she said, well, I'll teach you how to play it. So I said, that sounds good. <laughs> and uh, that's how I started. But I wanted to play sax, but saxes are a little harder to come by. Them. You know, flutes are easy. You can go in a pawn shop. Like I said, I was given this one. But uh, you can get a decent flute for $50, $100, especially back then. And, but the saxophone's a little harder to come by. Somebody told me, well, if you learn to play the flute, it's the same fingerings, basically, as the saxophone. And I also knew from playing recorder a little bit, which is also similar to saxophone. So uh, I started playing flute, and about a year later, somebody lent me a C melody saxophone. And it was really kind of in bad shape. It was, but I didn't know, you know, I was struggling and struggling. And I used to go see this band called Dead Cheese in Philly, and they were great. They were very Zappa influence. As a matter of fact, they used to do a cover of King Kong, which then was amazing. You know, nobody was playing covers of Zappa's music, especially not King Kong. Dave Hirsch, now Dave First is name, he changed his name to Dave First. Oh, David First yes, from uh, was, the uh, Note Killers. Yes, yeah, yes. And an avant-garde musician as well. Well, we were all in uh, Cecil Taylor's band together, but before that, they had this amazing sax player, and he was like playing like really kind of pharaoh you know, Albert Eiler kind of stuff, you know, and he had a beautiful sound. And so finally, after the gig, I went up to him, we started talking, and we found out that he was my second cousin, who I never knew existed, you know. So he kind of mentored me for a little bit, and his guy named Waller Underberger, he gave me his old Con 10M saxophone, which is a great horn, which I still have, but I, I play a Selmer mostly now. That was like before the Selmers were the top point, the cons were pretty much the main thing. They have beautiful tones, really nice sound. But anyway, he gave me that horn and eventually I ended up buying it for a couple hundred dollars from him or something. You know, it was, when I went, I went away to college, I went to the University of Oregon. Before I left, he sold the horn to me for very cheap. And so that was how I started playing sax. So I guess you really started playing when you were out in Oregon, I guess, huh? Yeah, that's when I started studying. Yeah, that was yeah. my first. And that was, a, man, I got some long stories, but I'll try to shorten it. Um, when I went to Oregon, I was, I actually was considering going into like biological kind of research or some, you know, I, I was sort of my interest back then. But I was also interested in anthropology. My father had an anthropology degree from Penn, even though he was an architect. And I grew up with that, you know, being interested in that stuff. So I was going to just basically do liberal arts. And I was also into writing. I started, had, I've been writing since like, you know, elementary school. I wrote a play in elementary school with some friends of mine. 
and uh, we performed it. And you know, I've always been into writing. I, I've loved it. That's that's tough on that tangent for just a second. <laughs> what was your play about when you were? Oh man, it was um, it was about two explorers. That I, you know, this is, we're talking about over fifty years. I, I don't remember this stuff too easy, <laughs> but uh, I remember my friend, this guy Russell Ruderman, who who was a state senator in Hawaii. He lives in Hawaii now. We wrote um, a. It was a, It was about these two explorers, kind of like Lewis and Clark, but it was a fictional thing. Obviously, <laughs> uh, Russell's brother went to West Point, he had an older brother, and he took us one time to the Army-Navy game. And uh, out of the program of the Army-Navy game, we, there was two guys, we just picked two names. There was one guy named Spiegelhover and another guy named Waldrop. <laughs> I, I don't know how I remember this, but I do remember it somehow. And, um, Spiegelhover and Waldrop, yep, the explorers. They were both players on the Army and Navy football teams. <laughs> but anyway, so instead of Lewis and Clark, it was the adventures of Spiegel Hall and Waldrop or something. And uh, I don't remember too much about the play. Here we are. So you're back, you're at uh, Portland uh, studying. Eugene, I went to Eugene. Eugene, okay. Yeah. Eugene was a very great city, a beautiful, beautiful city. Ken Kesey was living there. Uh, there was a lot of good, you know, music. But they, you know, mostly like Grateful Dead type of stuff. But anyway, I was, you know, I wanted to take a, a music course but the music department, this is like 1971, everybody wanted to be a musician, you know, so they said the only way you can be a music, music, take a music course is to be a major, and you have to take a test. I said, well, there's no point, because I had no musical background at all, and no training, and I said, I'm not gonna pass the test. And they, they were like, cool, they said, well, try it, just take it, what, what do you got to lose? I said, okay. <laughs> and so I just guessed the entire test. I, I didn't even try to read half the stuff. I just guessed, filled in answers. <clears throat> and I forgot about it. And so a couple of days later, I got a call from the music department. They said, well, congratulations, you got in. And I said, wait a second. I said, you know, this, I don't want to perpetrate a fraud, but uh, I guessed on the entire test. And this is how cool they were. They said, well, are you sure? Do you really want to study music? And I said, yes, I do. They said, well, maybe this is fate. This was like, you're, you know, you're fated to do this. And I said, wow, maybe you're right. So I did it. And uh, I ended up taking like all music courses like for a year. And I never, I realized I was never going to graduate because I was just, wasn't taking my, you know, needed credits. The Vietnam War was happening. And uh, the reason I say that is because the University of Oregon, again, was such a hip school. They contacted me. I was just turning 18. And they, you know, we had to register for the draft back then. You know, it was Nixon, the Vietnam War. They said, you, we encourage you not to register for the draft, and we will protect you. We are protecting all our male students. We're not giving any information to the federal government, you know. We're not cooperating. Because there was a senator named Wayne Morse in Oregon back then, and he was like the only senator in this country that was actively against the war. And he was an older guy, too. It was very interesting, man. So the state, you know, it was a very, you know, progressive, left-wing kind of attitude and atmosphere, counterculture atmosphere there. So Nixon, in retaliation, took away all the scholarships. And I had a full-paid scholarship to go to school there. So I lost my scholarship. Really? So at the end of the year, I came home, and that's a whole other story. I, I was hitchhiking with my girlfriend and a couple other people, and our car broke down in Idaho. And we had a, it was, I know we, we drove back, but our car broke down. We had to hitchhike the rest of the way. 
we got picked up by these crazy Vietnam vets that had just come back from the war. Uh, the guy took off his shirt and showed me he had his chest sewn into a peace sign from where he got blown up. You know? And these guys were just living in their car, and uh, they gave us some uh, peyote, <laughs> and we drove across the country and got back. But anyway, that's a whole long story, another story. So then I got to Philly, and all my friends that I was in high school with had started bands, and they were all saying, yeah, come on, man, you gotta play with us. And I started playing. I kept prolonging my return to Oregon, even though I wanted to go back because it was beautiful there, but it was, you know, I knew I didn't have the money that I was going, had before, and I was just having so much fun playing. And eventually I was playing with some guys in Glassboro University, I mean, Glassboro, that were living out there, and George Bishop, a great, great sax player, and then Rick Iannacone, who was my longtime, you know, musical collaborator for many, many years, New Ghost and Interplay and all that stuff. And we were hanging out playing, and one day this guy came by and said, uh, you know, Cecil Taylor is playing a concert tonight at the university. You want to come and meet him? And we said, yeah, sure. And so we went and we hung out, and Cecil played this amazing, incredible concert with Cyril and Jimmy Lyons and Cerrone, the quartet. It was around the time of the Spring of Two Blue Jays, you know that? Yeah. It was that kind of, that that was that period. And man, that music was, it was, it, well, it changed my life, there's no doubt about it. And at the end of the concert, uh, Cecil said, well, I'm going to start having meetings here. You know, he had a class, but it was like, he said, it's open to anybody that wants to come and we'll have ideas. And so I came and it was fantastic. You know, the, I think the first class, Cecil asked everybody, he said, I want everybody to get up and do a solo. Whatever you want to do, just do a solo. And so everybody got up and did whatever they do. And then he went around and said, okay, now I want you to go to the board, the blackboard, and notate what you just did. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that was the beginning. <laughs> and then we started playing records, and he would bring in, like, John Cherry and Penderecki, uh, that album, you know, there's one yeah. when he saw it. And then he would play Cool in the Gang. You know, <laughs> which who was hot and new, you know. Is exciting. this up in New York? This no, this is in Glassboro. This University. is all in Glassboro. Right now, Rowan University. Yeah, yeah. Glassboro. And then he would play Betty Carter or something, and he would say, who's this? And, you know, I knew it because I had seen Betty Carter. I, I saw this concert that Gino Barnhart did before the Foxhole started. Uh, it was um, at the Scottish Rite Cathedral, and he had... Uh, Betty Carter, Jackie Renee McLean, and Sun Ra, with Ferris Sanders and John Gilmore both playing, and he had about eight conga players out front. And that was the beginning of my serious music education. And then Cecil invited me and some of the other guys up to a big band that he was forming in New York. That was a 40-piece orchestra, it was incredible. And our my first gig in New York, I was 20 years old, was at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> so my life has been kind of <laughs> struggling to get up to that level again. Ever, I don't know if I can ever, you know, where can you go from there? Man? Did that impress your parents? They came to the concert. They did. They weren't really into free jazz, but they they listened to big band jazz and stuff, and they understood the connection. They, you know, it wasn't something they would go out and buy but because their son was playing in the concert. They came up, yeah, and they dug it. They liked it. That's amazing. My parents were cool. They were very supportive, very good people, you know.
I know at some point you uh, ended up playing with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. I did. Well, you know, when I played with Cecil, all these musicians said, well, you know, that's it, man, your career. You're never going to get any work for the rest of your life. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I said, thanks, you know. So I kept, of course, playing the music that I was inspired of. We had a band called Old of I that formed out of that. But, you know, uh, nobody was really working, and... Uh, not much, and we weren't on the level where we could go to Europe and stuff. We, we talked about it, and we were th planning to do it, but uh, then the, some guys, that I, the two main guys, Jim Richards and Tom Rollison, drummer and guitar player, that formed Old Divide with me, they, uh, they both moved out to the West Coast. So I was planning to go out there, and then Jim Richards, the drummer, he, he came back. He, he was a student of Milford Graves at Bennington for a while. He came back to Bennington, and while he was there, he died very unexpectedly after a marathon recording session. They were playing for like five, six hours. He stood up from the drums and went into shock and died. It was, it was very tragic, very shocking kind of thing. And that kind of put a damper on that. So anyway, I wasn't gigging doing like the kind of music I wanted to be playing. You know, for a horn player, especially back then, there was a lot of funk bands in Philly, and pretty much every neighborhood bar had live music on the weekends, so you could work, you know, three, four nights a week, maybe. Uh, what year might this be? This is in the 70s, like the mid, late 70s. Yeah. You know, so I started playing in a lot of, like, R&B bands, and, you know, it was fun. I, I love that music. I grew up listening to a lot of R&B, like, you know, most people, you know. I, did, I had an uncle who uh, was a songwriter for Cameo Parkway, so I was exposed to, like, Chubby Checker and Dee Dee Sharp and, you know, all those, you know, South Street and Orleans. I, I was listening to that stuff as a kid, as I grew up, so I liked it, you know, and it was part of my childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, one day I got an offer. I remember playing a gig at the Long March Coffee House on South when it was on Third and South, Fourth and South, where Zipper it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was playing with my friend Ed Watkins, and we did this gig, and there was like maybe two, three people, in this, and we didn't make any money, and it was a great, you know, the music was great, but I just I. I had I looked at my calendar. I didn't have one single gig on the calendar. I was talking to my friend Ed, and I said, "Man, you know, Ed, I think something's going to have to change." <laughs> I said, "We got I got to do something. I don't know what it is." But and that night, I got a call from a friend of mine, Greg Henderson, trumpet player, still around Philly. He said, "Man, my brother-in-law is uh, the road manager for Hal Melvin the Blue Notes, and they need two horn players to." go to the J Telluride Jazz Festival. Uh, can you do it? And I said, man. <laughs> I remember it was a hot summer night, so it was like 95 degrees. <laughs> I was sitting in my apartment just depressed. I said, are you kidding, man, to go to Colorado in the mountains? I think I could do that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, be at 30th Street at midnight tonight. And I said, I'll be there, you know. And I was there. And uh, I remember we went on the bus trip. We had a tour bus at the time, and Harold was... He actually sang the horn parts to it. He would play on a cassette tape the songs and sing us the horn parts. And we learned you know, on the road to, <laughs> it was like a two, three day drive. It was a long drive. <laughs> Who was the lead singer of Howard uh, Melvin well, and Blue Notes at this point? It was uh, Gilbert Saunders. Ebo, you know, Ebo was the guy that filled in right after Teddy left. Yeah, yeah. And he had just left to go on his own. Gilbert Saunders, and then there was a guy, oh, uh, Darnell Gillespie. There was a few guys, but they were the main two lead singers I remember when I yeah, was there yeah. and Rufus Thorne was the high the tenor he was great Rufus 
was a great friend. He was really yeah, I mean, very knowledgeable singer. Classic Philadelphia International oh, uh, yeah. and catalog got, there. Man, I got to tour. You know, I figured, well, this would be cool for a month or two, and I ended up staying 11 years. <laughs> wow. Because I still had plenty of time, not plenty of time, but I had off time to do things that I wanted to do. And uh, I got to travel around the world and meet so many great musicians. And I started, you know, learning how to book my own shows. Like, I went to Japan a couple times with uh, Rick Iannacone. I got him in, because he played with Billy Paul. And so Billy and Harold toured together a lot. We They traded musicians sometimes when they needed an extra, you know, you know, people came and went, like you know, a huge cast of characters, probably hundreds <laughs> of people in the 10 years that I played. And Tyrone Hill, you know, that's we. He was with Billy Paul also, and he, I got him on some of the gigs with Tyrone. We did a lot of stuff. And uh, Tyrone Hill would be the trombone, the trombone player, player for the Summer Orchestra right. as well. Yeah, right. And he was sneaking out of Sunrise House to go play with Harold <laughs> Melvin and Billy Paul. But I imagine too, for your chops and everything, to really be part of a steady band where you really, oh could, man, you know, and to travel around the world and to meet all these great people. You know, we toured with James Brown. We toured with the Temptations, the OJ's, the. You know, all the Philly bands, the Stylistics, the Delphonics, Blue Magic. You told me a, a great story once about uh, playing in Japan and going out looking for a, uh, a jazz club in Japan while you were there. Well, that well, I went to Japan with Harold four times. But the first time I came, I got to Japan. And I, I love traveling, man. And I, it was my very first really serious long trip. We went to Korea, the Philippines, Japan, Hawaii. And uh, when we got to Tokyo, I remember just dropping my bag in the room. And I don't think we had a gig the first night. And I just went, I, I got to, people told me the subways are all color-coded. So I said, okay, so it's easy to find your way around. So I just looked on the map and I saw where there were some clubs and you know they had like an entertainment magazine or something. And I remember going to this one spot. It was a really nice, kind of cool, you know, pretty sort of upscale place. And, but there was a jazz club. I somehow communicated, there was some guy, you know, everybody in Japan, most people speak a little English more than, a lot more than Americans speak Japanese, that's for sure. I told them I was touring with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and you know, Harold was big there, they, they loved the Philly sound there, it was huge in Japan. So they were honored, you know, they said, oh yes, you come and play. So I got the, up and they said, what do you want to play? And I mentioned something and they didn't know it, and they mentioned something, I didn't know it. And so I said, okay, let's just do a blues. And I looked up on the wall and there was a picture of Horace Silver. And I used to play Tokyo Blues with this band. And I figured, well, here I am in Tokyo. <laughs> so I started playing Tokyo Blues and the audience went nuts, man. They went so crazy. It was so <laughs> such an amazing experience. They were jumping up and down and screaming. I didn't have to buy anything the rest of the night. People bought me drinks. They took me around in a car to show me around the city and stuff, you know. It was really a beautiful experience, man. So yeah, no, I like Japan. <laughs> I've had a very a lot of good experiences. Uh, you know, I've always had good experiences traveling, playing music. I very rarely have had. I mean, I've got stranded a few times and <laughs> kind of crazy stuff, but they always turned out good in some way. You know, because I think it's like the intent of going to play music and to be creative and bring your spirit to other parts of the world. There's something that kind of you know. There's guardian spirits that watch out for you and maybe help and protect if you keep attuned to that. So it's good to keep positive, yeah. You just uh, were, were playing in Mexico, weren't you? I do go to Mexico a lot these days, it seems. Um, I have a lot of good friends there, and I really enjoy playing there. Where in Mexico? Uh, I usually go to Mexico City 
at least to start. I've also played a festival in Merida a few times, which is in Yucatan. And I've played in Baja, California a few times. There used to be a very cool music scene in uh, Tijuana. I don't know if it's still happening, but, you know, there's all the crazy bars and for the tourists and the sailors and all that stuff. But then behind a lot of those bars, or even underneath sometimes, they would have like jazz clubs or music spots or poetry things. And all these great people would be performing. And uh, I did a couple tours down there. There was a uh, clarinet player named Zopalote, and he, uh, he and his poet Gerardo Navarro had a spot in San Diego called the Ruse Gallery. It was very cool. And uh, they had some grant money and stuff, but th they were from Tijuana. So when I would come to San Diego, then we would go to Tijuana and do some gigs too. We'd go back and forth. So anyway, that's how I started going to Mexico. And then <clears throat> probably at least, it might be almost 15 years ago, I got an invitation to play this festival called the Olin Khan Festival. I think it was Gabriel, there's a group called Zero Point. Gabriel Lauber plays drums, Itzan Kano is a bass player, and Herman Bringas plays alto. They invited, they had this festival, they were all in, the Mexican bands were funded to bring one guest from America down. And I think the, these guys had seen me in uh, New York playing with Cecil back, one of the concerts probably the Knitting Factory. And they knew who I was and they kind of followed me and they invited me to come and play with them. And it was fantastic, man. I had an amazing experience there, really beautiful. And uh, Mark Dresser was also on that gig. He didn't play with us, but we shared a couple concerts. Great bass player. Yeah, I've known Mark for many years. He's great. He is. I think Tim Byrne was there. He yeah. played on a, in another venue. But there was an interesting how, who they chose. I don't know how they... I felt honored that they chose me, you know. But anyway, that happened. I met the promoter, and he was having a world music festival like several months after this festival. It was a jazz festival. And uh, he said that he needed a Balkan band. And I had just started playing with the West Philly Orchestra, who does Balkan-based, you know, big band material. I gave, we had a CD out and I gave him the CD. And about a week or two later, he called me and said, yeah, I'm bringing the band down, you know. <laughs> and so I went back with them. Really, I didn't realize and that Yes, we went, yeah. and it was really, we did a very successful uh, festival for the first, the first gig was in a park, open, it was beautiful, and uh, packed with hundreds of people. We sold out all our CDs in the first night, you know, which was good because at the morning of the second gig, uh, the, the promoter calls me and says, we're having a meeting, I need you to come down here to now. And I went down and he said, there's this uh, epidemic in, called the swine flu in Mexico City. And the city is totally shutting down. Everything's canceled for the next week. So I'm going to pay you in full. You can stay here at this Five Harsh Star Hotel. The last poets were also on the gig. And oh, wow. Many, many bands from all over the world, all these incredible world music ensembles from Africa, South America, Asia. And so we're all stuck in this hotel. So I, I said to the promoter, I said, man, why don't we have a concert here in the hotel? And he said, that's a fantastic idea. Let's do it. And so we had this amazing marathon concert in the hotel with, and the the West Philly Orchestra was the horn section for the last poets on this concert. It was, you know, man, <laughs> it was great. It's all videoed somehow. Somebody videoed the whole thing, so it exists somewhere. I don't know where, but how do you start playing with the West Philadelphia Orchestra? You know, that's Greg Mervine, uh, the drummer. He founded that group, and he used to have jams on his porch. He lived right across from uh, the Ethiopian restaurant at uh, 
Oh, the Fiume. Famous one, yeah. Yeah, Fiume yeah. above the Abyssinia. Yeah. And he lived right across the street. And he had jam sessions there playing Balkan music. And we were on some gig, I forget where, and he, inv- he said, why don't you come to my house one time if you're interested. And I played some Sephardic music and some Arabic music. I, I worked, uh, I actually worked at the Taj Mahal uh, Casino for five years with uh, Joe Chayun and Roger Mergadichian and Matt Hauser playing Middle Eastern and Indian music, you know. And uh, so I, they taught me a lot of, you know, traditional stuff. So I, I knew some of that stuff. It was related, you know, very much close to Eastern European music, a lot of the same rhythms and modes. And so I started going over, and within weeks, it seemed like we were getting gigs. I mean, the, the band was so, all the players were so good, and they learned stuff so fast. And then everybody started writing original stuff in that style. To this day, which they're still doing, like 15 years later, man, you know, it really, uh, all these guys are pretty much half my age, but uh, they keep me on my toes, man, because <laughs> they're all like serious school. You know, back when I was growing up, there wasn't like many jazz programs. There weren't many jazz programs in college. Like Berkeley existed, you know, but that was about it. But now, a lot of these guys are coming out of Temple and the U Arts, and they have serious, serious chops, and they're open-minded, you know, they're into playing all different kinds of music, and it's good, so. I think they're really known as a great party band. Well, you know, the Eastern European bands, that's, they, in the Eastern Bloc, under Soviet rule, they couldn't really, they didn't have nightclubs and stuff, really, so the way that they made a living was playing for parties, like weddings and, you know, whatever, even funerals, all that stuff, and it's kind of like a New Orleans thing in Eastern European culture. Gypsy, is the Roma culture, the Gypsy culture. Yeah. Which is very jazz-related, improvisation, and spontaneous, you know. So, it, to me, that's the the link. A lot of the guys in the band really have perfected playing in that style, which I've listened to for many years, and I really enjoy, and I, I deal with it when I can. But I, to me, my goal, or my role in that band is to bring the West... I'm the only member of the band that was born and raised in West Philly. So I feel like I have to represent West Philly in the band, which I do, you know. That's great. And they appreciate me, fortunately. I sometimes, at least anyway. And uh, I'm still playing with them. Like, yeah, it's been like about 15 years now. It's cool.
you've also uh, played a lot over the years with Marshall Allen, the uh, 99-year-old. He, he keeps saying that. Uh, yeah, saxophone player and uh, leader of the Sun Ra Orchestra. He's always... Uh, I've... I've uh, talked to him a handful of times he's always a, a joy to, to to speak with uh, what are what are your uh, memories of yeah, working I mean, with uh, marshall marshall you know he's like such a wonderful human being he's really something else man he, i i lived in germantown very early in my musical career like around 73 74 and i lived on morton street right up the street from the sunrise house and they had recently moved to philly so I got to start to hear them a lot and see them around the neighborhood. Then I moved away, and years later I came back to Germantown, and I lived there for about eight years at that point. I had a loft on Germantown Avenue. I used to run into the members of the orchestra frequently, and I knew Tyrone, and I knew some of the other horn players. And Marshall, actually, the house, which was, I believe, his father's house, that he sold the sunrise for a dollar, I think is the story. Yeah. Uh, so they could come down from New York because New York was getting so expensive and hard to live. But Marshall had his own place up on, I think it was Schoolhouse Lane, right off of Germantown Avenue. So, and we, I would see him a lot in the little mall there, Maplewood Mall, and the coffee shop, you know, having coffee in the morning or just sitting out smoking and talking. And I would go by and hang out with him sometimes. And he actually was very good at fixing instruments. And a few times I asked him to, uh, you know, help me fix, and he would show me how to do it, you know. Uh, he wouldn't just do it, he would say, look, this is what I'm doing, I want you to watch. And that was great, you know, he was an amazing person, man. Sometimes I would just go over his house and we would, you know, smoke and whatever, just listen to music, and he would just sit there sometimes and pick up his car and just start playing. And he would just like play for like an hour, you know, just for me, you know, him, you know. It was amazing, you know. And we started becoming friends. So. When Sun Ra was still alive, I asked him a few times if he would collaborate with us. But Sun Ra was not about that. You know, he didn't appreciate, you know, he didn't want his members playing with other groups. I feel like stopping here for a second, too. Talking to Sun Ra, how, how, was, how was that experience over you know, the years? You I, know, I never got really one-on-one -on -one experience with Sun Ra, but I was in many situations where he was speaking to a group of us, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and I saw him. I mean, I must have seen his, the band play a hundred times. I, I always, whenever they played, well, they played weekly at this club in Germantown called the, uh, what was it, the Red Carpet, I think. Right on on the corner of where they live, pretty much. It was a cool jazz club. I played there, and a lot of uh, well-known jazz musicians would come through there. But they had for about a year, maybe they had a weekly gig, and it was free. And uh, they had the whole orchestra in this little bar. They had the the dancers would be dancing on the bar. It was amazing. <laughs> and they played a lot in Vernon Park, which was kind of like my front yard of where my loft was. And, you know, I would see them whenever they played there. And they played in Philly a lot, you know. And they rehearsed every single day at the house, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And fortunately, I got to meet John Gilmore also, who was kind of like my, man, you know, of tenor players. To me, he was the one that really got my, you know, heart and soul, man. Yeah, famous for uh, for catching John Coltrane's totally, notice. Yeah, he yeah. was just such a beautiful voice, you know, and just such an incredibly musical spirit, you know. And uh, I watched him probably a hundred times, um, easily, I don't know how many times, but 
Uh, I know John's Wade called me, uh, he contacted me when he was writing that book to ask me about gigs that I was at, because uh, I was one of the few people that was at, like, you know, there were definitely, I'm, I remember seeing Sun Ra at uh, LaSalle College when there were more people on stage than there were in the audience, <laughs> and that wasn't an uncommon uh, thing back then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Which is amazing now because they play to sold out concerts all over the world, you know. Yeah, they've really established a reputation uh, after Sun Ra's passing. Yeah, and, uh, they're one of the big bands. Uh, yeah, there's there's probably more Sun Ra records in print now than in, at any point in the last, yeah. you know. Well, he was years. a pioneer, you know, Sun Ra. He, uh, he recorded everything. And he had his own label years and years before anybody else that I know. I mean, Mingus did it, of course, and a few other people. But um, but boy, the the amount of stuff that he worked on, yeah. the discipline that must have went into that. Oh uh, yeah. I feel like I'm I discover new Sunra or unearthed Sunra music as, as frequently as almost any working musician who's alive yeah. today. No, it's, there is so much stuff. You're right. There's, you ever, I'm sure you know about that book, that catalog of the discography. Yeah, the discography. It's like yeah. it's like a hundred pages longer so it's huge it's immense but yeah no so anyway when Sun Ra died when he well, when he went to where he went wherever he transitioned Saturn, yeah Jupiter next second stop was Jupiter I'm not sure but he uh, you know Marshall had the freedom basically to do what he wanted to do and slowly but surely we started developing a relationship and I would ask him to play and uh you know, he was he loved playing, you know, and that's what, what he wanted to do every day. And he still kind of, you know, John Gilmore was kind of taking control of the orchestra for a while, but then, I'm the musical director, but he got sick and then he passed, you know, and uh, there were a few other people, but and eventually Marshall became the musical director and he moved back into the house and kind of, you know, became the leading force of the band. But he also started, you know, playing with a lot of other artists that were had been wanting to play with him for a long time you know and he's such a unique you know powerful voice in the modern saxophone that uh, everybody wanted to use him like even the rock bands and all you know every kind of uh, yeah he played with the with the yola tango right and nrbq and yeah. i actually did some gigs with them tyrone got me on some of those gigs that they would use the sun ra horns and uh marshall played with them and uh Many, many groups, yeah. I mean, more than I can even know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Marshall's pretty prolific. So we became friends. And, you know, amazingly, I, I'm pretty sure I have this right, I had a big party on my 50th birthday somewhere, and Marshall and Tyrone and Danny Thompson, they all played with me. It was great. We did a beautiful concert. And then again, on my 60th, I did a concert somewhere, and again, Marshall played. So when it came to be my 70th, uh, October 23rd, I they said, uh, I mean, I, I contacted Marshall, and who's now kind of being managed by his son, and I explained the situation, and so we worked out a thing, and I got some, you know, financial stuff, of course. We have to take care of Marshall for sure, man, you know, yeah. and Marshall was available, because now he can't fly, and the orchestra, it was in Europe, I believe they're still there, and so they were interested in you know, he wanted to work around the area so he could keep, you know, playing and having an income. So he was glad to do it. And Yeah, we've been lucky to see a lot more Marshall yeah. in uh, the last year or so, yeah. Right, and he's, you know, I did one of the things at the Solar Myth with with Dave Hotep and him and uh, Mike Ray, we did a nice thing. And Luke Stewart, I think, played on that one. And his drummer from the Entanglements, the 
I, I don't remember his name. You know the drummer from the original? Oh, yes, I do. Cheshire, Cheshire he has a yeah, yeah. Great drummer, and uh, he and Luke were on that key. So that, <coughs> that was really beautiful, man. I, I loved, you know, it's so nice to still play with Marshall. You know, that was my thing on my birthdays. I had the Eclectic Electric Elders of Improvisation and Eternal Youth. And I do have a CD of some of that stuff, so I, next time I'll have to bring that one. I would always hire everybody older than me in the band. <laughs> Raymond King would play piano. Wonderful piano uh, player. Ed Watkins, my old longtime collaborator, he would play drums. Juan Ori was the usual bass player. And Marshall. So, like I said, th those guys were all a little older and they all made me feel younger and it was nice, you know, to uh, play with these elders still. That uh, I mean, all my life I've been playing with older musicians. It hasn't. Now I do have a lot of bands that are half my age, like I said before, but I still am honored and grateful to be playing with some of the elders. Is it anybody's fault that I came of age feeling closer akin spiritually to a calling of the spirits through Afro-Latin, Cuban, Haitian, American drums and chants and West and North Philly basements and alleyways than I ever felt in any orthodox conservative or any form of reform synagogue service, no matter how high or holy. Not that I ever necessarily claimed to have met my Loa through Yoruba, Lukami, Macumba, Santeria, or any Holy Roller Baptist Church or the Church of what's happening now, even as aspired up the block from the acceleratedly gradually possessed Puerto Ricano Fifth Street storefront altar. But I sure felt more at home and relaxed and enlightened by some spirits in Canada, some of those settings than on any Bema I've yet beamed on. No Catholic mass, save Jim Richards' funeral finale, where, as pallbearers, we hand-jammed and jive on his box drum percussion coffin to complete or just contentedly contended with the whiny well of morbid liturgy dirt. No Islamic call to prayer, despite spine-tingling chills, raising neck hairs and blood pressure in a rush of cryptic deja vu nostalgia on 52nd Street sunset silhouettes, purple crepuscular vignettes, urban seasonal scenarios of childhood and beyond. No Vedic verses, Hare Krishna dance, Taoist or Buddhist chants, no whirling dervish or Sufi rant or plan of selflessness or self-control has ever got a hold on my soul. Is it anybody's fault? Is it any lacking of my being that I have found or acknowledged no patron saint, no spiritual master, no guru, no shaman? Even when the I Ching advises a meeting with a great man, I'm still left alone with my thoughts and often feel anything but great. No no death wish, disaster, disease, upheaval, holocaust, or chaos. I hope and I pray to whom? To praise the creator, to raise the spirit, to prize the soul. Will ever make me feel it with my love of my life terminal on my own terms, eternally, taking a turn for the best and only choice I can make.
want to find me a lure who will hold my big toe. I want to find me a lure who will hold my big toe. I want to find me a lure who will hold my big toe. Yeah, so it's time for me to go. Unbound and rooted in air. Cosmoponic growth results in floating tendrils stationed in space, racing apace with solar and lunar highs and lows. With what's up and going down, who knows? Where? I have now reached a point where, as I've actually concluded, there exists a choice as to whether I just hate life and really love myself, or if it is life that I love and myself, which I truly can't stand, when will I learn to accept and respect time at its own pace, and at least give up this maniacal obsession with its warp, such as through means of pinched and prodded adrenals, real or simulated, with its various creative and destructive resultants? To amass, acknowledge, and ultimately ignore higher knowledge is the inevitably fatal flaw my fate must learn to forestall. If I can only outlive my death wish, I feel someday I will surely know to something. Your music is intertwined with an, with another discipline. You're also, uh, you know, quite established as a poet and a, and a writer. Uh, could you talk about, you know, the poet side of? Uh... Yeah, well, um, I told you I started doing these plays and, and short stories when I was very young in elementary school, junior high, and I got to high school and I was still doing it. You know, and I, in high school I wrote a play called End Song, and it was kind of about. You know, I was, drug abuse was a very big topic in those years because a lot of young people all over the country, all over the world, were starting to experiment with psychedelics and marijuana, especially. And so, so I wrote a play about drug use, which wasn't really good or bad. It was just kind of, you know, showing that you just got to be responsible for it. And we actually did it at high school. And I used a song from this uh, songwriter who I loved, uh, Buzz Linhart. Oh yeah, you know, he wrote, wrote Friends for uh, Friends. Bette Midler and. Uh, but Buzz Linhart, he was very influential in my. I would say Buzz Linhart and Cecil Taylor <laughs> were the two people that really started my career, man. Because Love keeps growing. That's my favorite Buzz Linhart. Oh yeah, he, he was such a brilliant musician, so. man. And he, you know, I got to meet him when I was very young because I asked him for permission to use the song, and he contacted me and asked me to come up to New York and hang out with him, and we did, and. Uh, man, I remember we smoked some incredible hash, and he very interesting because right like Cecil, he played Ohm by Coltrane, oh, wow. and he said, you know, I think they were all doing acid when they played this, <laughs> and it was a, you know, and then he he said, I want you to hear this new singer, this kid just came out, man, listen to this, and he played me ABC by Michael Jackson, you know, oh, wow. and so you know he was hooked up, man. He, he had a loft in the village in the '60s, and uh, Hendrix used to come by a lot. He was on Jimmy, that song Drifting. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Jimi Hendrix. He plays vibes on that song. Oh wow. And uh, so Hendrix was a friend, and he said Bob Dylan used to come around looking for Hendrix. He said Dylan would come and say, hey, "Is Jimmy here?" You know. But they they had some amazing sessions, and one album came out on ESP called The Seven Sons. Do you know that album? Yeah, I do. And it's a very beautiful improvisational album that. And uh, Buzzy was one of the very first people to use sitar, and like tablas and stuff on rock albums, and really well. That album is just totally improvisation. There's a great flute player, I can't, whose name I can't remember, unfortunately, but uh, and Buzzy singing and doing this raga rock kind of stuff. And yeah, Buzzy was a was a figure in San Francisco area when I yeah. lived out there in the '90s. He was yeah. one of the first people who uh, was talking about medicinal marijuana, actually. And uh, I came out and played on his 70th birthday party at Ashkenaz in Berkeley. Oh yeah, another, another place. It well. was a great. He had a lot of his friends come. Maruga, you know Maruga Booker, great drummer. Yeah. I think he used to play with Weather Report at one point. He was oh, wow. a really good percussionist drummer. He. It was a it was a, a collection of all these different people that he had played with, over. and I had done a, a couple of little tours with Buzzy later, so he invited me to come, and it was great. That was the last really big concert I think that he did, but yeah, he was really into the medicinal marijuana and all these different dietary things, really extreme things. He was always trying like this <laughs> stuff, and he was always totally you know fanatically convinced that it was the right thing. I remember they wrote an article about him and he said he watched Bette Midler whenever she was on television because if she you know, would sing a few bar friends that was money in his pocket. Right, right. He and Moogie Kleeman, you know Moogie? Yeah. He was yeah. a keyboard player. They, they wrote, co-wrote that together. Yeah. And he, you know, he also was actually Carly Simon's partner for a while and mm. uh, he wrote some stuff for her too. I think. I think the love keeps growing. Maybe that's yeah, something. Yeah. Didn't she do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not I sure. I think she did. She did at least one or two songs he wrote, and uh, they were hooked up for a while. But you know, <laughs> he also he was in this movie, The Groove Tube. I know, you know very well. Sure. And he told me that he was the first male to do full frontal nudity in a Hollywood <laughs> film, which he does. You know he. There's a scene where he gets picked up by this woman hitchhiking or something, and uh, oh, they go right. into the woods and they have I didn't sex. realize that was him. And they and the cops come or something, or somebody comes, and he starts running down the road like completely naked without his clothes on. <laughs> that was like his movie. That, you know, he was very proud of that. He used to talk about that a lot. That's he was funny. a great guy, man. Buzz. He was really a unique man. He he was one of the guys that came between the beats and the hippie thing he was that bridge of you know those different cultures and that knowledge and and he was just one of these unique people to be around he was like a, you know he was always on he was always like you know <laughs> like cecil same thing both those guys they were really uh, unique human beings so i'm very grateful to met them early in my life but anyway so we got this play and uh that when i got through all the other years and ended up playing with Cecil, we formed this group called Oldevi. Tom Rollison, Jim Richards, and myself that were members of Cecil's Ensemble in Glassboro. I remember one day we were playing the Trenton Avant-Garde Festival. Do you know Dennis Kitts? No. He had this thing called the Trenton Avant-Garde Festival, which was great, and they, they did it every year for a while. And some really amazing music got, it's all recorded. He has all the archives of it. I should hook you up with him because he has a lot of great music from like the mid 70s early 70s from around the area all these improv bands that were in philly you know and new, new jersey so anyway i remember being on stage and i started writing prose you know not really poems but just like prose and stream of conscious stuff which i didn't even know at the time but i, I later <coughs> realized was very 
you know, coming from like Kerouac and Ginsburg and Bob Kaufman was always a great influence, you yeah. know, he was like, uh, I know Cecil was very, very fond of Bob Kaufman, he thought he was like the real voice of that poet. Of the yeah, and uh, poets of that among year. a lot of people who study the beats, they, they yeah. single out Bob Kaufman he was as like, being a special he was talent. The man, you know? yeah. But anyway, so I started writing somewhat in that style. We were doing a concert sometime, and I just remember picking up one of my poems and just started reading it with the music, with, you know, that was going on. Steve Haynes also played with us, a trumpet player who's been, also worked with Cecil later, uh, a bass player, Mike Egan played with us. And uh, I just started reading the poem with the music, and it just seemed so natural. And for the first time, I really started feeling the rhythms in my words. I realized that I write and play music in the same kind of you know, concept of rhythmic phrasing and stuff. And so I, more and more, it started coming together and I started reading more in my performances to the point where to this day, still, it's pretty much integral in most of my performances. Whenever I do my own music or even with Westfield Orchestra, I've done, I, we do the Sun Ra piece, uh, Call for All Demons on one of their CDs. And I do a poem over that in Balkan style, Call for All Demons. It's a very cool version, I think. So, you know, I've been able to incorporate my words in a lot of different situations. And uh, I feel they're pretty much all like sax, voice, and flute. You know, I'm a vocalist. You know, I'm not a singer, really. I don't pretend, you know, I've worked with too many great singers to try to call myself <laughs> a singer. But I know how to vocalize my poetry, and especially with the music. And uh, so that's become what I really enjoy doing the most, I think, you know, when I'm combining all that together. You didn't... Uh bring anything to read by any chance did you oh man you know i have stuff uh can we take i gotta get it out of my phone sure Is that cool? yeah somebody was saying when you go see stand-up comedians now often they're scrolling on their phone the but whole man, time you know first of all it's lit and then most of the clubs are dark so yeah yeah you know, if you're trying to read a piece of paper in the dark especially with my old eyes that are like getting <laughs> stigmatism and everything I can't see shit in the dark, so... I hosted poetry readings for years in San Francisco. Really? Yeah. Where, where did they do it? Uh, I used to do it at a place called Jam and Java that was a block off the hate. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. But uh, yeah. the Chameleon I used to guest host at and the Paradise Lounge were, were both pretty steady uh, poetry spots. Um, I can just read some stuff, yeah. It's also so much easier than carrying around a whole... Big shoes, sure, sure. but I still bring charts and stuff to most of my gigs because sometimes I just like to read off of paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, this is one of the pieces I was doing in Mexico. A lot of times, what I do when I do improv gigs, especially in Mexico, because the musicians there are so beautifully open and sensitive to just playing spontaneously, I'll use my poems as a head and then we improvise, you know. And sometimes I'll actually musically notate the poems, you know, and I create pieces. And I don't often teach them to the other musicians, but I let them respond. And that's how we improvise, you know, so. Yeah. But for now, I'll just, uh, this was called Stay Lifted. Augustly fading blue moon into a chill September short sleeve breeze entrancing entrance. Loping pope of locust, antithetical, semitic, semantics, pedantic, prophetics. Howl, how long can this solo, so low go on? Drops of stay lifted, 
Papa Barkley, Psychico Canadella business lock in a row in a rock steady stroll between in a hard place in a hard pace spaced to the fate of waves of decades of heroic saves above and beyond the pall of beauty which also fades, duly noted, duty quoted on the QT futilely or not. The last call crescendo on Kamak decrescendos, in fact, to the thrums of Kemet suns, ostinatos of glass, raking in brass, and aura of Cora. Psalms sums up the situation, bombs of the crowning jewels of creation. That's great. Stay lifted. Okay, it opened up great. To be or not. New bloat, Arthur's blue note, or redone, invested, tar-bending bar Templars, one and done like J&J Vax and cellar dog, fun by one, a.m. sun, day, night, run, jangoed walls of stone and smalls, the former rainbow, Christ, O oh, fur-like mass, and may I, mother, lit wild wit, sweeping the West Village, lone late night sweet steaks, for heaven's sakes, and Hell's Kitchen, take a walk on the wide, wide, wild side, sight for sure, eye and eyes, pan dem demonium narrowed envelope of cold golden chances over under sideways past down by the river run through and through welcome to the new bespectacled respectable rose-colored reality series and facts and theories and answer to our fears and queries wearies the wonders to be or not <laughs> keep going another one yeah let's do at least one more who you got? The fickle finger, pop my chinko of fate spun and set. Bam! On the perpetually set wheel of roulette sealed sign delivered and yet. Respect wields its druggy head and winds and winds a thuggy stead. Holmes elect Atlantricic Avenue, a venue of a who? You got working the panhandlered corridor. Above and afar, hand pandered call of duty and justice for all. Try maybe one more. From creamy berry brioche, Gloria Day, Paris baguette tete a tete, Amer Yuka, the winged serpent namesake tale of two continents, to mom's angelic avant-guardian banana blossom, Thai tom ka, autumn rum droll drum roll prelude to a vintage-blown blue glory hold flute serenade. Being appropriately paid, post two hours, two days, two year, self, semi-self, semi-self, and post passion drought brought about by latter-day sign of sainted doubt as to how and where and why. We've left John golden chances by, past crass class distinctions and imperfections and predilections to rise and shine a la 4 a.m. Sunday morning gospel good times. The love I lost, or at any cost at least misplaced, is the space played and perpetually faced alone in the late night enlightenment, tone, poem, homeland, insecurity of vegan carnal love and happiness above and beyond the adaptiveness to the call of duty and the rise and the fall of beauty to the eyes and the ears of the beholder hearers, or so it appears and commences to the realm of the uncommon senses. That's nice. 
<laughs> you know, you see, I use a lot of themes in my poems repetitively, like I would in a solo. You know, I take themes and play on them. Yeah, and all about the, the sort of internal rhythms of the... Uh... Yeah, the rhythms and the alliteration, and that's always stuff. I mean, I grew up reading Dr. Seuss like a lot of us, and, <laughs> you know, the whole rap industry basically came out of that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, but, of course, you know, the addition of the soul R&B vibe is, uh, and the jazz vibe and, you know, the culture, you know, just to bring it all together. And uh, that's the American way, right? <laughs> It's a loo-loo-ow. While in Philly, they fest underground. Honolulu from Ivory Coast. From Samoa, a mayoral ghost of a chance. A pause for alternative cause.
what do you think it keeps you inspired and keeps you going out night after night and playing this music? You know, it's like tapping into the life force, man. You know, especially I'll tell you, the past like five years have been rough for my life. You know, I was I was ending a very long time uh, marriage that I was in for like a quarter of a century, and uh, you know, a lot of my musician friends were dying off or getting sick or retiring or becoming recluses and all my family and friends that I grew up with in Philadelphia is pretty much gone you know all my the people I know here are people I've met later in my life which is crazy because I you know I remember being a small child here (laughs) nobody else is around too much a couple I've been running into a few people over the years but not many but anyway it's uh, you know so the music especially during the pandemic I lived alone in an apartment, well, with a cat and uh, a very small apartment in Center City. And, you know, I, I can't sit still. I, I, every day, even though they said not to go out, I had to take a walk, you know. And it was beautiful. The streets were clean and fresh air and peaceful. And, uh, you know, I would walk to Rittenhouse Square and take my flute and play, or I'd walk to Penn's Landing and take my horn and play. And I started meeting other musicians sometimes. and. 13th Street became a mall. They blocked it off and between Sansom and Locust and all the restaurants had outdoor seating every day, even in the winter, for over like almost two years. And I lived right around the corner from there, so I would go out every day and play. And I was actually making a decent living, you know. And I had friends that worked in some of the restaurants and they would give us tables and heaters and bring food and coffee. and. You know, they were very helpful, and people were actually pretty generous. You know, Philadelphia really impressed me during the pandemic. They, you know, politically and culturally and socially, we kept moving. We found ways to improvise to keep doing what we do. And there was a very hip street culture scene for those years of the pandemic that I was, you know, in the middle of, so <laughs> I took part in it, and it was good. You know, it was, in many ways, musically it was good, and Financially, it was a way to survive, and uh, the music, that was the way I got through every day, by playing. I was somewhere, you know, I, I live not far from the Bar Time, and we, I play there a lot, you know, because I know a lot of the musicians there, and I occasionally get kicks there myself. And they're the only bar I know, except for Chris's, that has live music seven nights a week, pretty much, anymore, in Center City, you know, and especially jazz or improvised music. You know, but there's new places opening up all the time, you know, which is great. I know this place, the Black Squirrel, do you know about that? No. It's in Fishtown, right near where the uh, the Fillmore is, around there. Okay. That's opening up, they're supposed to, I know they have a Monday night jam session there, jazz thing. The guy wants to make it a full-time venue, now he said. There's new places opening up, fortunately, of course, it's just necessary. And Philly's always been a spot where the underground scene was strong probably more than the club scene. A lot of basement gigs, warehouse lofts, churches, art galleries, you know. That's been the real history of Philadelphia music in those kind of spots, you know. To me, from when I grew up, that's what I remember. (laughs) What's what's left for you to do, Elliot? Uh, Survive, man. (laughs) You know, really, it's a day-to-day thing. I mean, I I like to travel more. I really like to, you know, travel. under comfortable and, you know, respectable type of, you know, uh, 
conditions, you know. Like a gentleman. Yes, to be treated well. And in Mexico, I am treated that way. That's why I go there a lot. The people there are great. And I don't make a lot of money, but I play a lot of great music every night, which I can't do here or in New York or really any other city. I, can play, I played eight gigs in seven nights last week. And every, every gig was a different venue. It was a rotating cast of musicians, but always different configurations and always beautiful, great music and good audiences. People came out and enjoyed it. and It's amazing. I love it. So, yeah. you know, people have said, why don't you move down here? Yeah. But then I'll be a regular like everybody else. And now I'm still like the guests come in once or twice a year. So it's kind of nice. What, what gigs do you have coming up over the, uh, the next month? Do you have any? Um, to discuss? Yeah, well, you know, we do the last, the fourth Thursday of every month with Airlift at the Comedy Barry. I just did a whole bunch of gigs. Uh, I, I can't mention this thing. I'm doing a thing Wednesday, but it's a, well, the, well I'll just say this. Wednesday, there's a tribute to Odin Pope at Solar Myth, and I will be there doing something. And uh, that's this week. And, you know, I have, I'm playing a time this month. Uh, I'm playing at Heritage on November 4th with Dave Hotep and Jan Jeffries. That's a really cool trio I love playing with. You know, I have quite a few things, but I have to look at my calendar. But yeah, but you know, I'm on Facebook, Elliot Levin. Uh, I have a website, ElliotLevin.com. So it's pretty easy to find me usually if people want to. And you have had a, a, a CD come out this year as well. That uh, I, I, I did have one the... that was recorded years ago with Bob Roosh, uh at the um, up in New York with uh, Jason Fratelli and Ed Watkins. And beautiful trio record for yeah, CIMP. Well, both those guys are such great players, man. It was really f a lot of fun, yeah. And I recorded an album very last year with uh, John Blum, uh, Marshall Allen, and Chad Taylor. And they're working on that. And that, that should be released any day. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a mention of this label, Astral Spirits. Sure. But I'm, that's not confirmed 100%, but that's what I'm hoping uh, is going to happen. That should be out soon. So, uh, yeah, and I've done stuff, you know, with Kevin with Son Oliver Lake, Sonic Liberation. We did some stuff. and uh, Two two incredible records in the last couple of years yes. with Sonic Liberation. They were both Prime. actually done during the pandemic, which is incredible because uh, that was so, that kept me going too. That was really something that kept Yeah, me that going. was music I listened to a lot during the pandemic myself. Yeah, yeah, and then working on that stuff, being able to rehearse. You know, in the beginning we had a recording separate Everybody had to record by themselves, you know, that we couldn't have more than two people in the studio at the same time. It was crazy. But anyway, yeah, that, that kept me going very helpful much during the pandemic. That and then the Westville Orchestra were always doing stuff and they're always recording. They release a lot of stuff online. If you go to their website, you can, I think, access a lot of that music. Yeah, and always a good time, the, the West Philadelphia yeah, Orchestra no, gigs. Yeah, that's good. I think we're going to play New Year's Eve somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where yet, but we usually have a New Year's Eve gig. Usually at the Underground Arts, that's where we've been doing it. So we'll see what happens this year. I'm not sure yet. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, yeah, coming man, out, Yeah, no, thank LA. you. It was great. Uh, you know, we recorded that session that I did at the Rotunda with Marshall also, um, on the 22nd, the day, the eve of my birthday, we did it. Ah, so uh, hopefully something will come of that. And you, know? you can you can find your music on Bandcamp as well, right? Yes, I do have a thing. The one thing I have right now is a duet with Hernan Hecht, who was a drummer in Mexico City that I met a couple years ago. And people have been telling me for years I should hook up with them. And we never crossed paths. And then I just was there and I called him. I said, hey, you know, I'm Elliot Levin. He said, yeah, I know you are. You want to come over and play? I said, yeah. And he had a professional studio in his house. 
I just met him, you know, and he said, let's just do something. And I said, cool. And I pulled out a bunch of my poems and started reading, and then we play. And we did a whole album. We did like 10 pieces or something. And, and it was beautifully recorded. He had an excellent uh, setup there. And he's a phenomenal drummer. He's a really beautiful drummer. But then I wanted to tour with him, but right after we did this, this is my fate, my usual fate, he moved to Argentina. <laughs> so I told him, bring me to Argentina, man, I want to come there. So, but that, yeah, that's on Bandcamp, that, that album, yes. Great. It's called A Word By Any Other Name. Wonderful. Well, yeah, uh, I better uh, get ready. We got to head out. He's our, he's got to like it, it. It seems completely in character that, that he would have to rush out here for a gig. Uh, so thanks so much, Elliot. Thank and, you. Uh, thanks for sharing the music. Yeah, it was great. I had a good time. That's it for the Fun to Know podcast. We heard music today interspersed by the Elliot Levin Trio, the West Philadelphia Orchestra, Interplay, New Ghosts, and Sonic Liberation Front. To find out more, check the notes at SoundCloud or the Fun to Know Facebook page where you can find out more about past episodes. To download and stream episodes, go to Apple, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and email us at fundtoknowpodcast at gmail.com. And here's hoping you come back again for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.